It's time for All Hands on Tech. Climb on board as we explore all the amazing things happening in Nova Scotia's tech sector. Each episode, we'll chat with local experts to uncover the secrets of what makes Nova Scotia the best place for collaboration, innovation, and creativity. All Hands on Tech is proudly produced by Digital Nova Scotia, the industry association for Nova Scotia's growing tech sector. Welcome back to All Hands on Tech. It's kind of expected nowadays that if you own a business, you'll have some kind of digital presence. But to do it successfully, it's not just about showing up online, but about offering an enjoyable experience for the user, i.e. your customer. And that's what today's guest excels at. 2020 Digital creates digital product experiences that your customers will love. Jamie Gerard, the company's founder, has more than 20 years of experience helping businesses create new web and mobile apps, optimizing existing ones and expanding or pivoting into new markets. And we're so excited to have him join us on the podcast today. Welcome to All Hands on Tech. Thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, obviously, we gave a brief overview of what you do at 2020 Digital, but maybe for folks who've never heard about you before, uh, walk us through kind of what you do for your clients. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think it, it's probably good to go back to the beginning. Sure. I've, been, I've been working in tech for about 23 years. I uh, started my career as a web developer, actually, in the early days of the web. And as I navigated through that, I started to come up with some patterns and things that I saw that I felt would be interesting to work on. So I quickly navigated towards more um, training and facilitation, which led me to doing what I'm doing today. So mm -hmm. a big chunk of my business is actually doing hands-on design for products. Um, but as well, I do uh, training and facilitation of internal teams to help them design better products as well. That's been probably one of the bigger, more rewarding pieces of what I've been doing lately. Okay. And you've had how, how much experience in tech, you said? 20, 23 years. 23 years. Okay. And 2020 Digital is what? Like how, how old is 2020 Digital? Yeah. So the company is about five years old and okay. it came sort of about um, just due to the types of conversations I would often be in with um, on founders or people working on products. So the 2020 is almost a double entendre. So mm -hmm. it's the 20 hindsight. Oh, I wish we would have thought about this beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then the other 20 is the clear path forward. So it's Nice. I'm brought in on both ends usually to help with the um, the current product, the current state, and then maybe working with the team on coming up with a clear path to move forward to make sure that they're they're making the best product they can. Okay, very cool. So we do have some questions prepared, um, but we do want to get to know you just a little bit better. So let's dive into some rapid fire questions. Okay. <laughs> I mean, do you want to start? Sure. Um, earbuds or headphones? Earbuds. Easy. No, you didn't have to think about that one. <laughs> um, Siri or Alexa? Neither. Neither. Okay, you have Expound. to explain that one. <laughs> uh, I think the only time I really use um, an assistant is to call my wife when I'm driving. Okay. And do you use Siri? I use Siri, but it's very rarely that I use either. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Touch screen or keyboard? Um, depends on the intent. If I'm sitting, working in front of my desk, I like a keyboard. If I'm on the go and I'm traveling, I used to like to use a, a touch a touch screen. Sweet. Okay, and we only have one more. This one might be a little bit more tough, but um, what's your favorite app? Um, great question. I'm really into the Headspace app lately. Um, I enjoy mindful meditation, but the experience of using the actual app is amazing for okay. me anyways. Yeah. And I've heard that before, so I should give that one a go. Yeah, it's great. They have a lot of great content, but even just how they curate the experiences mm -hmm. and they keep track of all the different aspects of what you're working on is... This is not an ad. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a great segue into our first question. 
because you said user experience. So um, your website, obviously, you know, you say you create digital product experiences that your customers will love. So what does that include in 2023? And, you know, what are people expecting out of their digital experiences today? Yeah, I mean, the obvious sort of, I guess, starting point would be the the shift of being a digital first, like if you're a service company, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to government went through a lot of this during the pandemic where they had to spin up a lot of government services fairly quick. Um, the expectation, just through my experience in lenses, um, people are expecting more mm-hmm. from a um, from a partner or a vendor or someone that actually is providing these services for their business because their customers are expecting more. So the days of coming up with a concept, I would say through just guesstimation or opinion is going more the way of um, now being informed and um, driven by different levels of insights. So I would say the the audience is a lot more smarter and they're in tune with what um, they want and they have a very maybe shorter tension span for, for not great experiences for any, any kind of a product that they're using. Mm-hmm. So I guess when, so I guess to expand on that, like what are some of the expectations? Like let's Let's talk about an app, say, for example, like if people are using an app on their phone, are there any like must haves nowadays? Yeah, something that comes up fairly often. So I, I do a fair bit of work um, with early stage startups and it's onboarding. Onboarding mm-hmm. has to be ex- absolutely seamless, but more importantly, it has to be quick and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll often lose a person if the onboarding has too many points of friction for them, where either you're asking for too much information up front mm-hmm. or you're asking complicated bits of information that a person may not have access to right on their phone in the moment that they decide to sign up. So very seamless mm-hmm. and very low touch for level of um, amount of inputs that you have to give to get on board to using a product. Mm. And I've definitely been there. I mean, even you just talk like a fast food app or something like I want their coupon, but if it's going to take me 10 minutes just to sign up, you know, like it's, it's worth it. I don't know. I mean, they, they want, they want me to go through it all, but it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, if I look even over the last few years, the types of products that I've worked on, I'm mm-hmm. um, in mobile in particular, it is the onboarding tends to be the really big sort of make or break. Uh, right. You have very short amount of time to capture someone's attention. And if that experience is not great while they're onboarding, more points of frustration will come up and they may be less likely to want to use your product. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what happens once you get past like that onboarding? What, what happened? Like talk, what about, you know, actually using the app once they're, once they're in, what do they need to keep them on the app? Yeah, I mean, whatever the the marketing promises, right? So if the marketing promises, hey, you can do this X times faster, that should be the absolute best thing that your product does. Mm -hmm. All the extra dressings and bells and whistles, while they may seem important, they're not actually relevant to maybe what a person's looking to do. They want to get in, do the thing that they signed up to do as efficiently with little to no points of friction as possible, and then get on with the rest of their day. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, So a big topic of discussion today is accessibility and the user experience, what should companies keep in mind when they're creating digital products with that in mind? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot we can get into sort of in that. Um, I would say it depends on the organization's stage of maturity from a design standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I say that um, having worked with a lot of um, large enterprise teams and even marketing teams, right, um, they'll often look to have some, I'll call them checks and balances of things that they should be mindful of. So if you're already in a project, you can start to look at what basic accessibility means to your company and your audience, right? 
And that could be simple things like ensuring there's enough contrast between your foreground and background colors. The text size is large enough for a person that's maybe a little bit later in their professional career, has the ability to see fairly clearly as opposed to small, you know, stylized text that may look nice to some, but is not necessarily accessible to others. Um, and other simple things too, if you're designing for a desktop, um, you know, making sure that your main navigation and the content's accessible without a mouse. I call it a point-click environment. So something as simple as tab indexing and being able to use the arrow keys to navigate your your website or your or your product are super important. And then on mobile as well, it's again the contrast, the font sizing would be two. I would say bare minimum uh, sort of entry points that a person should be mindful of when they're designing. If they're a bit later stage. Um, often they'll want to go in and retrofit. And really what that means is they have an existing product. Maybe they receive some feedback that there's some accessibility improvements. I would almost weigh to see how much the effort and cost is to retrofit that as opposed to working in smaller new things and either a rebuild or a redesign at some point in the future. Often they can be both as costly. So are you saying like there's kind of the standard when you're starting off and then you kind of adapt as you go based on feedback? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a position where you're starting from from like the ground Zero. level, um, coming up with some sort of internal governance is always the best best foot forward. And it doesn't have to be this large, massive amount of information where you have 20 or 30 different requirements, just very bare bones minimum and constantly work on improving and iterating over time. It's a lot more digestible for a team, especially if this is something they're thinking about for the first time, mm -hmm. to get in and take baby steps and mm -hmm. build up that confidence and trust because you're building up not just the confidence and trust of the people that are using your products or service, but also your internal team to help them understand the value and why we should be as inclusive as possible when we're designing digital products. Mm -hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is you know where the UX audits come in. Uh, right? Like that's that's what an audit would be doing, would be looking to make sure that your the user experience is good and doing what it says it's doing, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. There's um, there's two types of audits. Like in me and my business, I'm often brought into um, assess, I'll, I'll call it a current state review of what a, a product is. And okay. a big part of that is an accessibility audit. Um, so for me, that could be going through some of the things I just mentioned, using some online tools um, like Wave Accessibility Tool. It's a free one everyone can have access to. To run your, you know, your um, your your product through if it's on a website or a web-based um, product, um, but also looking at things that you can address, what I'll call sort of low-hanging fruit, and then mm -hmm. prioritize bigger, more um, heavier lift stuff for a little bit later. But that's part of it. The other part could be what the overall. Um, um, experiences, not just for the business, but for the client as well. So I often don't look at just one or the other. They're mutually exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. So the team also needs to have some sort of success in UX criteria for them internally, as well as what their goals are to make sure it matches for the product or service. So you almost have two paths running at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I find the teams that sort of are able to find a great balance between the two can actually build up their trust and confidence in the process and make more of a business case to do constant iteration and improvement for like an audit standpoint. And that could be a one and done where if you have a product, you can bring in, you know, either somebody on the outside that's not maybe as close to the product, but if you also have the capabilities internally, that could be somebody within your team that just schedules, you know, maybe an hour mm -hmm. once a month on the last Friday to go through and just do some testing um, on the website or product, um, either with doing some of the things we talked about are actually doing some usability testing, which sort of play into the overall success over time. So that kind of, you answered kind of the second part of that question, but like how often people should be doing audits, but really it's on a regular basis. Yeah. Again, I would sort of, I would sort of step back and ask you know, what led us to having this conversation where mm -hmm. we identified that there's an opportunity for doing an audit. Um, you know, if it's a, a bit of a, 
an older experience mm-hmm. and we're trying to get some more life out of the current platform or product that we're doing, um, conducting just uh, an audit with some of these free online tools is definitely a great step in the right direction. Um, if you're in a position where you can build that governance out internally, um, I always recommend as a starting point once a month for an hour. And that is more just to build the habit internally with the team. It's just like doing reps, right? Like you do reps and repetition, anything else, whether it's working out exercise, the more reps you do, the more common and mm-hmm. natural it's going to become. Um, so with large and small teams, usually last Friday of every month, carve out to do that and then actually um, use that as an opportunity to build more over time. But the, the sweet spot would be after you get through that initial sort of testing and auditing for your for your digital product to then build a cadence, which could be monthly as well, to do usability testing with actual people that mm-hmm. aren't maybe within your organization to validate some of those assumptions. Okay. Um, I do. I don't want to take all the questions. I do have one more question since we're on the topic. Um, you know, when you do these audits, like, is there any like common theme that comes up mistakes that people are making, like common mistakes? Yeah. The three that I see fairly often, um, is the keyboard navigation. So not mm-hmm. being able to fully access, um, a, a website, for example, without using, uh, like your tab navigation, your arrow keys. Mm-hmm. And that's something as simple as just ensuring that the priority in which a person clicks the tab button goes through their navigation properly. Um, the biggest one that sort of pops up 99% of the time on all projects is font sizing. It seems like a okay. very basic one, but just increasing the text size and not relying on the browser to do that. Um, that's a huge win for everyone using it. So if we think of accessibility, we want to find a balance between design and aesthetics, but Mm -hmm. making sure that those design and aesthetics actually support somebody being able to actually read and use the product, right? So like for myself, if I'm working on a computer, I may wear my glasses. So for me, that's a less of a strain on my eyes if I have to look Mm-hmm. and squint my eyes, look closer to a screen. The rule of thumb generally is, especially for mobile, you want to make sure that um, everything's readable about a hand's length away from your face, sort of like you would read a book. And the font sizing should be equivalent to what you would see in a book as well, too. I always find it, as a, as a user, obviously not as a designer, but when I'm on an app or a website and I have to scroll across, it's oh. always the most annoying thing. It's like yeah. I'm two words away from being done with the sentence and I somehow and sometimes there's no scroll bar and so I'm like how my phone doesn't work that way how do I how do I move across like it's it's very annoying so I think there's a great importance to what you do (laughs) yeah and the the last one I think that would sort of cap off the three of them is the contrast this is something like Mm. if I work with a designer that's maybe new to becoming a designer always outweighing maybe aesthetics more to usability, like the two are mutually exclusive. They're not one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, a very common one you, you may see, and now that I'm bringing it to your attention, might be something you see more often is light colored gray text on a white background. Very basic. Um, the thinking could be for any number of reasons. One could be, oh, well, it has to be there, but we don't draw attention to it. If it has to be there, we don't draw attention to it. You should always have it still being accessible. Otherwise, I would question whether you need to have it there in the first place. That makes sense. Yeah. I see that like in the like unsubscribe button or something. <laughs> that's that's sometimes called a dark pattern. Like they're as well. trying to hide it, yeah, so they, I can't unsubscribe. They have to put it there for whatever reason, exactly. but they don't want you necessarily to draw attention to it. Do you find um, like pushback when it comes to design versus? Because I can see that being an issue, right? People want a certain aesthetic, as you say, um, but it might not necessarily be user friendly. So. How do you navigate that conversation? Yeah, I would say the the balance is, um, if I put on my designer hat, it's less about the amount of constraints that I have, and it's more about, mm-hmm. well, here's the opportunity in the sandbox I have to play in. So I can right. make many different sort of things within that sandbox, uh, maybe dependent on the number of 
tools I have to make sort of things. So instead of looking at it as restrictions, look at it as an opportunity to make it that much more accessible because a great design, if it's accessible, more people are going to see and be able to use it. Totally. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. (laughs) Do any examples of a perfect UX design come to mind to you? And are there any shout outs you'd like to give? Yeah, I... I would say it would recently, just because it's topical, I would say the the Headspace app, um, just the way the content's curated. So if you look at really if you look at the overall <laughs> experience of a product, everything from their onboarding to their sort of daily recommendations to other content they have, they do a great job of weaving in all different types of mixed media within it, but then also showing you progress and keeping track of how much you've actually been doing. It's mm-hmm. not overbearing to the point where it's like, oh, I feel like I have to do this thing. It's just like, hey, we're here. Mm-hmm. Here's your progress. Here's some other things you might like. I find that to be really rewarding and great. Uh, one I, I personally really like is the, I don't know, do any of you use Duolingo? No. Oh, I have. The I don't currently use it, but. It is so accessible. And, and some it makes something as like, as hard as learning a language, because at a, after a certain point, it is really hard to learn a new language. So accessible, so easy. It like ma- draws out a map of all like the learning units. It has different formats of how you like put. It's a good mix of like you speaking, you listening, you typing, mm-hmm. you reading. Like it's such a good mix, and everything is just so so great. That's my example personally of a really accessible, cool. I don't even. Do I feel one? well. When I think apps, like no, I don't. I'm gonna have to like go scroll on my. <laughs> I don't think I use that many apps. Like in, I use social media on my mm. phone. So maybe Instagram, but it's not because it's necessarily the best app. It's just that an addictive, yeah, kind of formula. Yeah. Something that I'm actually, I, I would say, complements sort of that sort of thinking. I often work with teams sometimes that um, are looking to start and build a product from the ground up. And really what that means for them is it comes into the hiring and whether they need to bring on uh, outside help with this. A good foundation is when I got into the industry many, many years ago, um, a lot of the things that I would design would still have to be very manual. So whether I was writing code or designing little widgets, they would all be manual. So I'd have to keep a folder mm-hmm. of my collection of all these things. So of mm-hmm. course the barrier to entry over, over time gets a little bit lower. So it makes the baseline for all these tools and services a lot more accessible. And some of the more modern frameworks actually have a lot of accessibility built into them. So it's less about having to worry about making sure you have those kind of compliance checks and more about leveraging what's out there. And mm-hmm. so you can iterate and build faster on your on your product are there any like trends top of mind that people kind of it's a non-negotiable now for an app like if you have an app you have to have xyz as opposed to before like when we were just exploring the app space per se it was kind of like oh this is an added feature what a cool easter egg is there just like non-negotiables at this point i i don't know i, I would feel s- like that's tough too because yeah. it's like there's depending on like what industry you're in too right like are you are you offering like a scheduling app or you know what I mean versus like shopping or I don't know yeah but I but I knew but that's a good question though I'm wondering it's not to say that you have to answer this I'm just (laughs) like throwing it out there like I wonder if there's anything that like like, maybe you personally for you as a user is there anything that you're like if this app doesn't have this um it's more about the overall duration of the experience so for me a non-negotiable or something that would be a blocker for me from using a product is how much work do I have to do to use your product? Mm-hmm. If you're asking me in front loading all this information, yeah. I start to question why do you need all this information for me just to get in to use your product? Right. Yeah. Um, also points of friction as well, something I find very frustrating when I'm onboarding. I just want to get in to do the thing that yes. you promised through your marketing that your app <laughs> could do, and then I have to do all these extra things before I can do that. Often I'll just 
I'll just abandon the product and not necessarily use it or look for a competitor's product. Right. Hmm. For me per- mind. personally, and I don't know how this speaks to like the design, but if it's too slow, like I, I don't know if that has anything to do with the way that they designed it, but if if it takes me, if it's not instantaneous, I don't want it on my phone. Like things that take too long to load, like because in apps there's like sub, I guess, I don't know, folders or sub things that you access through the app. And it's like, if it's going to take me twice as long to get from one point to I'm automatic delete by remove done get out of here I it has to be super instantaneous that's my like non-negotiable yeah yeah because otherwise I would go online if yeah. it's an app it has to be instantaneous no yeah I mean, it really depends there's a lot of factors right if you're in a more um, dense like city environment if your app relies on having a mm. wi-fi or internet connection there could be reasons why some things may work and may not work um, other things that could be updates on your phone need to be accessed. So there are a number of factors, and especially if you're dealing with a native app versus a web app. So mm-hmm. if you have a web app and you're in a region that has uh, maybe low internet connectivity, that actually may be a point of frustration for you. But I wouldn't think to know. I'm just like, hey, your app's not working. I just thought of um, an app that I really enjoy, and I do my banking with RBC, so I'm going to give them a little plug because I find their app super easy to navigate, and I can do everything right on there. So they've got a good app. Interesting. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, So when is it the right call for a business to build an in-house UX team as opposed to hiring out or building a relationship uh, with an outside UX partner? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say it really depends on what your goals are as an organization. Mm -hmm. Like if you're looking to build an in-house team to have those competencies, um, investing early is usually a good starting point to build that skill set up. But I would often um, start with asking why. Well, what led us to wanting to actually be in a position where we're looking to hire this role? Mm -hmm. Um, Even as a practitioner, I often spend a big chunk of time sort of educating what it is I actually do and how to actually position it. Because the 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 acronym UX can mean different things to different people depending on their experiences. You'll often see like UI slash UX. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually the reverse, right? Because you can't build the interface before you understand the experience. So I'll often see that when I'm talking to teams that, hey, we want to hire a UI slash UX designer because I'll, I'll help with them with recruiting. So before I even get there, I'm like, okay, well, let's just look at what your current team dynamics are and look to see if there's an opportunity or anyone has an interest to upskill, right? So in my experience, a lot of cross-functional teams currently, they have all the elements in some aspect of what a role could potentially do. So depending on capacity and other factors, you could almost look at a starting point to work with your existing team get into a cadence of understanding what a process looks like and what UX means to that organization. And you need to be able to balance business goals and you know, marketing initiatives and technology considerations when you're going through any kind of a process. But when you get to the point where you're like, actually, you know what, we're becoming more focused on this aspect because we want to do more usability testing. We want to make sure we have uh, a lot of insights gathering from multiple points, research. If you're not able to currently do that in-house and you can make a business case to actually hire for one of these roles, I would even at that point, I would recommend against it and hold off for a little bit longer. Um, Often when I'm talking to companies or teams that want to hire for these roles, they've just identified an immediate need. And Mm -hmm. then after working with them for a little while, we can actually carve out what that role means to them, right? So if you Google right now, if you Google UX designer, even within the province or within Canada or abroad, you'll get some very similar skills 
but it's going to be very different depending on what the organization's needs are. So I would often suggest starting and just doing an exercise internally to figure out what UX means to the team and how this role plays in the overall success, but then also making sure that the role can be successful and helping support the teams, right? So you can hire a role, but if they're not in a position where they can be successful, they're not necessarily going to be able to help achieve whatever goals. Um, in that case, saying that, um, when you're working with a, a partner, it may be good to engage someone early in the process to at least learn and understand what value they bring and how they actually approach design. And that way you can then start to curve out maybe what that looks like for your team internally. And again, if it's a, an ongoing long-term need, definitely look to maybe hire um, a person in host to help with that. Because then even from there, you got to look at whether they're going to be a generalist or a specialist. Mm -hmm. um, often small teams in my experience, need a generalist. They need somebody that can do a little bit of everything versus if you're in a larger team, you may be in a position where you can actually specialize in certain aspects Right. Um, versus someone like myself where I would come in and help maybe facilitate and train their team on how to actually be more design-focused or also come in and help them with a near-term project need that they have a that they have a, identified as an opportunity. So I'm sure you probably do a, like a mixed bag of things, but do you mostly work alongside longer term with companies or do you come in and do kind of those one and done, they need a product and you, like you just said, the, they're near completion or... Yeah. yeah, it really depends on the relationship, but most of the long-standing relationships I have, I've actually worked with those teams for many years on mm -hmm. many different projects. And in some cases, I've been helping them build out their uh, UX skill set in-house, helping hire their team or helping their team be more cross-functional. Um, in other instances, it is a one and done. I often look at, like even as, as a consultant, um, I'm looking just as much as what the uh, company's bringing versus what they're looking at me to bring to the table as well and to see if it's a good fit. And for me, it's less about just coming and designing a thing and going on to the next one. Right. I want to actually really be into the product and the team. And that usually is a differentiator for me if I'm wanting to engage um, working with the team on a project. But if it is a one and done initially, it usually turns into a longer a longer term relationship where I provide support in some capacity. Um, I like doing some of the hands-on design stuff. I don't get to do that as much today. Mm -hmm. I do more strategy and just high level facilitation and working with teams, but um, I do enjoy sort of all aspects of the design process right through to doing usability testing myself still. Okay. Do you miss kind of the more the design side of things or? I think I get enough balance yeah. where I can, I can go back to like my old school days, put my headphones on and then just <laughs> design. I'm keeping up with a lot of the design tools is a bit challenging, but the process is the process. And the piece I found most interesting and most rewarding is working with the people behind supporting these things um, within an organization. So whether it's a, you know, a enterprise level team or a small early stage startup, the passion that I've sort of developed over the last several years is working with them and helping them be successful in whatever area they're doing. Very cool. Yeah. So I guess our last question is really just, you know, is there anything coming up that you want to highlight? Any um, Anything exciting coming up for 2020 Digital that you want listeners to know about? Yeah, we fly pretty much under the radar year round. Um, I think I was joking with uh, with you both earlier. Um, five years, I just launched a website finally. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of my business is 100% referral based, which is great. Longstanding relationships is a testament. Um, we're working on some new course material that we're going to make publicly available. Um, a broader scope on sort of um, things that we're interested in our observations from working with teams, especially in the Atlantic Canyon region. So um, some interesting stuff there, but for the most part, we're, we're mostly just heads down working. But if people do want to learn more, they can head to your new website, which what is it? 2020.digital. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We loved having you. Well, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to All Hands on Tech. Interested in learning more? Visit us on our website at www.digitalnovascotia.com. We'll see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. production.